Chapter 7 is where we pick up, where we left off last time, and if last time together was perhaps titled as the thrill of victory, uh, chapter 7, if you read ahead, you notice is sort of the agony of defeat. Uh, And chapter 6 in Joshua records for us probably one of the greatest victories that Israel experiences as they see the power of God work on their behalf. Remember, as God literally took down the walls of Jericho for them, all they did was believe the promise of God. They obeyed the command of the Lord, though it was in some ways an unorthodox battle approach. It wasn't something that seemed logical, had nothing to do with their fleshly strength with their human ideas or ingenuity. It had everything to do with the fact that God wanted to work in a way where he would get all the glory and when they would recognize that it was nothing other than the mighty hand of the Lord that had worked on their behalf and what they thought could possibly never happen, uh, that God was able to deal with that. God was able to bring walls down that looked like were just absolutely impossible and was able to address that for them so that they might come into the experience of what God intended for them and what was hindering God removed Uh, out of the way for them so uh, this incredible victory happens remember as they march around the city for seven days and then on the seventh day they march around seven times they shout and literally miraculously the walls come falling down God grants them victory there in Jericho the first battle that they fight really is quite honestly not much of a battle at all because the battle was the Lord's it belonged to the Lord and, and he took care of all of it we're dealing with for them And coming off the heels now, this incredible victory and this miracle that God has just orchestrated, and you no doubt everyone is charged and they're excited and wow, look what the Lord has done and and, and this just incredible probably enthusiasm, a sense of they've just made incredible progress, they've experienced some success, some victory and so forth. The last verse we read there at the end of chapter 6 is the Lord was with Joshua and his fame had spread throughout all the country. And now chapter 7, verse 1, begins by saying, but. Now, a lot of times when you read that, that's an indication something not good is coming. Uh, incredible miracle, God's victory, great success, but, however, it says, the children of Israel, verse 1, committed a trespass regarding the accursed things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now, as we go into chapter 7, as I said, this is going to give to us now a record here in chapter 7 of the Israelites experiencing defeat Uh, And tragically, it's really the only defeat that we have recorded in the book of Joshua that they experienced. But it is a good reminder for us as we look at their conquest of the land and as they enter into the promised land. And there were a lot of victories, but obviously God is gracious enough to allow us to see that there was an occasion of defeat. We'll see in chapter 9 as well, where they sort of err a little bit as well, where they sample the provisions of the Gibeonites, but they don't seek the Lord. And as a result, that kind of puts a little snag uh, in what they would have to deal with but I appreciate that God records these things for us because as we said before this is a picture in some ways uh, typically uh, typologically of 
our spiritual life. They inherited a promised land. We inherit a promised life through our Joshua Jesus. A promised life in the Spirit. All that the Bible promises to us in the New Testament of what the fullness of the Christian experience is supposed to be. That we are able to take territory in the things of our new life in Christ. And that there are victories to be experienced over sin. There are obstacles and things that God wants us to be more than a conqueror over. And God wants us to experience the fullness of his promises and his blessings and the glorious promised life he has for us in Jesus Christ. And yes, there's a lot of victory to be experienced, but in humility, we all have to recognize there also are occasions where we as well uh, have experienced probably already occasions of defeat maybe in our lives where we've had a setback spiritually. Maybe we stumbled a little bit or we took our own little tour of backsliding if you would or or something sort of ensnared us and and we as well don't have a uh, a perfection of performance we're all in progress we're all in process second corinthians chapter 3 tells us that we are being transformed from glory to glory it says by the spirit of the lord again it doesn't say we've been transformed Our spiritual position is one of righteousness. It's one of that we are justified. God even sees us seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But our practical experience of sanctification, of walking out the Christian life, is a process of becoming more Christ-like. And hopefully there are a lot more victories than there are defeats. But the reality is we're all in process. We are not transformed the bible says we are being transformed by the spirit of the lord that process of our practical walk in holiness and victory over sin and so forth and god wants us to have the victory but uh, we all as well have experienced times of defeat so we read now here an occasion where instead of victory they experience defeat there's a loss of progress they're being sort of held back from experiencing what was God's will and God's intention for them. And it's important, I think, that as we look at this, that we take note of what caused that, what caused defeat in their lives, Uh, what was the thing that was hindering them, what was it that was involved, what did God reveal to them, and then more than that, what needed to be done to get back on the path of progress to get back on the path of victory. And Joshua chapter 8 records them right away turning things back around and getting back on a path of victory and even victory over the very thing that they, in a sense, were defeated by in chapter 7 here. Uh, To remind us again that we can be defeated by something, but it doesn't mean we need to stay in a place of defeat. Uh, We can deal with things spiritually, scripturally, the way God tells us to in righteousness, and we can then turn right back around and move towards a progress path again and back on the course of victory and overcome by the power of the Lord helping us in the process. So verse 1 records to us here now that something has transpired, particularly the Holy Spirit takes note for us, that a man named, it says, Achan there had took of the accursed things and caused the anger of the Lord, it says, to burn against the children of Israel. Now take notice, verse 1 says, the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. That sounds like collectively, corporately, doesn't it? But then the Holy Spirit goes further to identify that there was this one man who was responsible for taking some of the accursed things. But yet I want you to notice here, very important here, that the sin and disobedience of this one man, in a sense, 
caused a detrimental effect upon the entire congregation of Israel, upon the rest of the nation. The problem was there was sin in the camp. Now, they didn't recognize that. They didn't know it at first because this was a hidden and a covered thing. But God's heart, in a sense, had a a posture of displeasure towards all of the congregation, towards all of the people because of the sin of one individual who was a part of that collective family of the people of God. And this one man's sin causes great problems for the rest of the congregation. And we'll talk more about that. But this is an important thing to remember, that that our sin affects others. Uh, Certainly, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are uh, the body of Christ. We are individually, it says, members of one another. And, And there's no one in the body of Christ who can sin and sin alone. We never sin alone. Our sin always has an effect upon those that we're connected to. And we are connected to one another as the family of God. We're connected to our, our say, our own personal family domestically. And our sins always have a detrimental effect upon others that we are connected to. And this was the case with Achan. Now, what was the sin, in a sense, that Achan was guilty of this man? Very simply, it's that the word of God was being disobeyed and disregarded. You notice it says there that he took of the accursed things. Now, we can answer that not by guessing, but by looking at scripture. We just saw this last time. Glance back with me into chapter six. Remember when they were conquering Jericho, look at verse 17 of chapter six. As they're getting the instructions to conquer Jericho, It says to them, chapter 6, verse 17, Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all in it. Only Rahab the harlot, remember she was able to live and all with her in the house because she hid the messengers that we sent. But look at verse 18 and 19, very critical. And this is God's instruction for the conquest and victory over Jericho. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things. That is the defiled pagan things among the city of Jericho they were a heathen people they were debauched in their activity and practices I mean demonology I mean there were very vile things that were happening in the city of Jericho and so God says don't touch that stuff don't get engaged with it it will defile you he says you shall abstain from the accursed things lest God gives his warning verse 18 lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and look what the warning says and make the camp not just your own life make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it that is one sin of one person would trouble the entire camp but all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord they shall come into the treasury of the Lord so the sin was very simply a disregard of God's word God gave his word God attached a warning to it. God said, listen, this is my instruction. Don't violate this. If you do violate it, there will be a consequence attached to it. God even explained what the consequence was. And yet Achan, for whatever reason, in his selfishness, so chose to, in a sense, disregard what God's word said. Uh, for whatever his reasoning was, his strong desire, the fact that, well, you mean, I'll get away with it. No one, you know, I won't hurt anyone in the process. And, and he didn't take God's word seriously. And he just blatantly disregarded what the clear word of God was. And as a result of that, there was now sin in the camp. It brought trouble to everyone. And the willful sin of one man, as I said, was hindering the progress of everyone. It was harming everyone because of his sin. 
and disobedience to God's word. And at first, let me say this, it was secretive. It was hidden, as you can tell from the passage, for a time. No one knew what was going on here. But God knew. God was fully aware. And this is what we see in the chapter here. You know, it's often been said before, secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. It's a good reminder. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Job 34 verse 21 says this, His eyes are on the ways of man and he sees all his steps. So as Achan was rationalizing and justifying, though he knew what God's word said, I can get away with this. I'm going to do this anyway. I, I won't get caught in the process and, and, and I, nothing will really happen. It, it'll be okay. However, he reasoned that out in his mind. The reality was, as God was seeing every step he was taking, was watching his ways. Hebrews 4, of course, we all perhaps know that familiar verse in Hebrews 4.13, where the Bible there warns us and tells us that there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things, the word all means including everything and excluding nothing. But all things, the Bible says, are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account everything what may be covered among one another and listen as human beings we are masterful we are masterful at learning how to cover things up how we really feel what we're really thinking what we're really doing i mean we're so masterful with the cover-up it's not just that we're good at covering it up maybe among other brothers and sisters in christ and yet we have this thing going on in our private life that no one knows about Sometimes people can become so good at the cover-up act that they can cover things up from those even closest to them. Their closest friends, their own spouse, their, their parent or, or, or their child. And, and yet nothing is covered before God's eyes. God sees everything. God's fully aware of everything. And God says, also, we will give account for everything. And this truth is proved out in this chapter. So look at verse 2. It goes on to say, now Joshua, again, keep in mind, at this time, God's aware, but no one else is. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which would be the next location, about 15 or so miles away from Jericho, the next, if you would, territory that they would seem it would be right to conquer which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel. And he spoke to them saying, go up, spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. So again, typical military uh, practice here as before, go spy out the area, bring me back surveillance information, give me some idea report of what we're looking at there, again, from a military perspective so that he could take that into consideration as far as the tactics of the next military uh, endeavor they would be involved in. So he sends out the spies to go spy out the area of Ai. And verse 3 says, the spies returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. Now look at verse 4 just quickly. So about three thousand men went up there before the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim. 
and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people of Israel, the ideas, melted. They were astonished and overwhelmed, and they became like water. Now, I want you to notice what happens here. Joshua sends out the spies. They come back with a report there in verse 3. And they don't just give a report. They, notice they also give a recommendation. They give a report. Well, this is what we can tell you about AI. And then they offer their recommendation to Joshua. Look, Joshua, this is what we think. I mean, I mean, compared to Jericho, I mean, these guys are grasshoppers, man. I mean, Jericho, they had the big walls and stuff. And I mean, the people of AI, they, they, they seem so much fewer in population. They seem like a much smaller, weaker influence. And, and, and Joshua, we're on a roll here, man. I mean, think about it. We just took down some walls in Jericho. I mean, we're on a pathway to success and we're experiencing some victory here. And, and so basically what you can sense they're, they're recommending is, look, Joshua, I mean, there's no need to rally all the troops and, and go at this with, with full force. I mean, we, limited capacity. We can knock this out. No problem. Take care of this. This is a small obstacle. Don't let all the people be troubled. Just two, okay, maybe 3,000 at the most of our military troops would be more than sufficient to go up and to attack and to conquer those people. Now, I want you to notice here, because you read in the verses here, obviously, that they experience defeat. I want you to notice, I think, what are two clear flaws, again, that they make, which contribute to the defeat that they experience in this chapter. Certainly, the sin of Achan, the sin in the camp, weakened them. And that weakness hindered their progress and, and, and hurt them and in a sense caused them to experience defeat. But I think you see some other things here. Keep in mind, God said the children of Israel have committed a trespass. And I think this was here some evidence of mistake among perhaps Joshua and just the people of Israel in general, general here indicated to us in verse 3. Do you take notice, first of all, it seems like they're very overconfident. There's a sense of self-confidence here, self-reliance, as if somehow now, because the walls of Jericho have come down and they've been kind of on a path of victory and, and triumph and success, it's almost like all of a sudden now they've adopted this mindset that they, that they really don't, in a sense, have a whole lot of need uh, to really have to go at this with a whole heart or whatever, but there's kind of a sense that we, we can handle this one. I mean, 2,000, 3,000 men tops here. And, and there's this sense of sort of a self-reliance. They think that what they can do and their efforts and very little effort at that can take care of this no problem. And what you have here is them demonstrating their confidence in their own flesh and not putting confidence in God. And whenever we or anyone put confidence in our flesh, no matter how small the obstacle may seem, we are always on a path towards self-reliance and pride, which is always going to result in defeat. Again, it tells us in Proverbs 16, you know, th that the heart of man is haughty and, and, and lifted up before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. And, and, and it, that, that heart, when our heart becomes self-confident and self-reliant, and even in the spiritual life, you know, we, we begin to experience a little victory. We get a little taste of the power of God, and God works through us, and God's beginning to do some things. And then all of a sudden, we may not say it outwardly, but we kind of get this little, like, I, I got this. Like, I, I got this, God. I mean, I'm sure there's other people that really need your power right now. But I got this, I got this figured out now. I'm experienced, Lord. I, I've taken out a, a big enemy in my life. 
So we almost begin to adopt this mindset that somehow we don't have to depend upon the Lord as much and in our own efforts of our flesh, our own experience that we have a little bit now, we can conquer. And the reality is this, listen, in the same way that the hugest enemies and the biggest obstacles can be overcome with God because with God, nothing is impossible. In the same way, the smallest little hindrances and the smallest little obstacles, if we try and take those things on in our own strength, in our own effort, we will fall flat on our face and be defeated. Because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me translate that. No thing. Nothing. Nothing. That whole passage is about abiding in Christ, relying on the power of Jesus. And it's the same in the spiritual life. We think, oh man, this this, big area of maybe habitual sin dropped off of our life. And then we think we can take on the, 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 maybe what we in our estimation consider the little smaller enemies or or obstacles in the spiritual life. And we just think, well, I, I can just in my own spiritual momentum, listen, Yesterday's spiritual victory does not guarantee success, victory, or progress in today's battles. We need to stay current with the Lord. We need to stay dependent upon the Lord. We need to put no confidence in the flesh, the Bible says, and have our full confidence in the Lord. And here, that kind of overconfident self-reliance, which is a measure of human pride, really is one of the things that leads to their downfall. The other thing I would say is this, I draw our attention to, is you take notice in this little section here, it seems to be that there's an absence of communicating with God. Where's prayer here? Where has it gone? Before Joshua chapter 6 and Joshua chapter 5, Joshua was having a dialogue with the Lord there who is the commander of the Lord's army and he's in a sense dialoguing, I believe, getting the exact battle plan from the Lord. Chapter 6, it's very evident that though it was an unorthodox plan to victory, it was God's plan for victory. And Joshua didn't go at it with his own ideas or he didn't go at it because, okay, well, you guys accumulated some surveillance information, so uh, you're the spies and if you've got some good ideas, we'll just go with your idea. Because that's basically what goes on here. They They go, they give surveillance, they come back and they don't just report what happens They basically then recommend what Joshua ought to do. And instead of Joshua asking God, he just takes their human ideas and he says, "Ah, that sounds good. And we do got some momentum now. And he just goes with that instead of seeking the Lord. And I'll tell you, whenever we find ourselves beginning to do that, seeking maybe counsel from someone else or, or not seeking the Lord about things and being prayerless, that is a definite pathway towards spiritual defeat in our lives. Sin will begin to overcome us. Things will begin to become difficult for us and we'll begin to struggle because we're trying to do things without the Lord's power and without his leading and his guidance. You'll see as we get to chapter eight, ultimately that God's plan for battle and victory over Ai was completely different than it was for Jericho. Because God does not, in a sense, establish one method and say, there you go, there's the method, now you just work the method the rest of your life. Because that doesn't require faith, it doesn't require dependence upon the Lord, and God's not going to be reduced to formulas. And, and, And God's plan for Jericho was march around the city in faith, in silence, say nothing, be quiet, 
and then shout when I tell you to and I'll miraculously bring the walls down. When God wants them to defeat Ai, he's going to tell them in chapter 8, listen, totally different battle plan. I want you to set an ambush. And it was a totally different approach to that particular situation. And this is important. We need to stay current with the Lord. We need to be praying and seeking the Lord. Okay, that happened that way and that's how victory came. But Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? How do I handle it? And, and give me guidance. Lord, you're the, the commander of the army. Lord, I'm not in charge. You are. So Lord, please, I don't want to be in charge. Lord, you just tell me how to do this and what way to go about it. And Lord, you lead and I'll follow. And Lord, we need your power because if you don't come through miraculously like you did in Jericho, it doesn't matter if there's just two or three people in AI, they will still whoop us and they'll take us down. And we see no mention here, it seems, of prayer until after they're defeated. And it's good to pray after you're defeated, but it's better to be proactive on that one. <laughs> pray before you're defeated and maybe you won't experience the defeat. That's the pathway to victory. And here... We see them, in a sense, and these two go together, self-reliance and prayerlessness. And in the same way, when a person is being prayerful, it's an indication that they're not self-reliant and they realize how utterly dependent they are upon God. I'll tell you something. The one person you will never have to convince of the importance of the prayer life, the one person you will never have to exhort and and challenge and, and, and try and you know, encourage them to, to put value and investment and time into personal prayer and corporate prayer is the person who is humbly dependent upon God and they know it. And that's why prayer is so important to them. Because they understand, God, if you don't do it, I can't. I have no power. I have no power. And so these things always work together in conjunction here. And as a result, it tells us here, Israel, rather than being victorious, are fleeing before the men of Ai. Verse 5 tells us that actually, look at the tragedy. It says, the men of Ai struck down, that is, they killed 36 men out of Israel's troops, and then they chased the rest of them back away with their hearts melting and being completely fearful. So again, notice, the result of mistakes, the result of sin, the result of prayerlessness, the result of self-reliance, it resulted in loss. 36 people lost their lives. People got hurt. More than hurt, people actually were, in a sense, put to death. And, and whenever sin has its effect, whenever there's prayerlessness, whenever there's disobedience to the word of God, these things that in a sense are the cumulative effect of this defeat, this is always the case. Sin is destructive. It's not just wrong. It's destructive. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. Sin pays its participants. The sin of Achan, this one man, caused 36 people to die. One man sinned in the camp and 36 families experienced tragedy. Their lives were utterly changed and damaged severely. They lost 36 men that day and there was a sense of utter humiliation. It says, verse 5, they came back rather than being encouraged in a sense, God is with us. Their hearts swing to the other way now. It says their hearts are melting and becoming like water. They're just absolutely astonished. What has happened? 
And, and this is a genuine thing here. Again, they don't realize what's transpired. The, the sin of Achan has not been revealed yet. And so now Israel finds themselves in this place where they're, in a sense, feeling like, what's happened? Where did the power go? How did we just experience the crossing of the Jordan miraculously and, and the walls of Jericho came falling down and God has been moving and there's been power? Where did the power go? What happened? How did we end up being defeated? What, what, what's taken place here? Why, could, why would we be defeated by such a small enemy at that? And there's a genuine concern and they're baffled now. They're astounded that they've experienced such defeat. And sometimes that's a part of our process in life where we, we find ourselves kind of humbled like that. Where we find ourselves going, Man, what in the world happened, Lord? How, how did I fall into this? How did I get defeated in this way? How, how, how could I have lost progress and gone backwards? What happened, Lord? Well, listen, as they experience that, Joshua makes a wise approach here. Verse 6, it says, Joshua tore his clothes. And again, this was a symbolic act that the Jews were very expressive people. The idea was like, you know, renting your heart before God. Renting your heart before the Lord. Lord, I'm pulling open my heart. Please reveal to me. Give me evidence. Help me to understand. Joshua tore his clothes. He fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord. Again, the idea is in humbling himself before God, getting on his face before the Lord until evening. So the idea indicates the Bible. They spent a whole day there, it seems, just in humble prayer, seeking God, trying to understand why this defeat has happened and the loss. He and all the elders of Israel, so the, the other leaders are following in his lead there around him in prayer, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua, verse 7, said, Alas, Lord God, why? Have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites or to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwell on the other side of the Jordan. Boy, doesn't he sound a little bit like the Israelites in weak moments? Lord, what, why? I mean, what's going on? And Lord, you brought us over here to give us one victory and then just let us be destroyed and, and, and overcome. And again, what, what's going on here? You have a little bit of an overreaction by Joshua in his human weakness here. All of a sudden now he's, in a sense, pouring out his heart before the Lord. Lord, if anything, if we were going to be defeated and destroyed, uh, he says, couldn't we have dwelt on the other side of the Jordan? In other words, Lord, couldn't you have just kept us with the floodwaters in between us so that we wouldn't be totally destroyed and, in a sense, eradicated as a people? And again... There's an overemphasis here, making more of it what it is. And this is typically a lot of times the way we respond in the midst of failures and problems. We always inflate things, don't we, much bigger than what they are. And, and, but what's Joshua doing? He's just pouring out his heart before God here. He's being honest. And God can handle us being honest with him. And I, and I admire the fact that Joshua, his first word is the key word. He says, Lord God, why? Why have we been defeated? Why has this happened, Lord? We don't understand. Oh, Lord, he says, verse 8. Now notice he changes. What shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? He's afraid that they're going to just turn around in fear and just run off. So he starts out with why in prayer. And then he says, what? First he says, why? But then he says, Lord, but okay, what are we supposed to do? Lord, tell us why and tell us what to do. So that things don't get worse, Lord. 
Verse 9, for the Canaanites, he says, and all the inhabitants of the land will hear about it. And then they'll surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And then he says, verse 9, what will you do for your great name? Now, I love the end of Joshua's prayer there, verse 9. What will you do for your great name? Do you see what Joshua is primarily concerned about? God's honor. God, he says, what about your reputation? God, we don't want the people of this land to think that our God is weak and that our God has abandoned us and that our God gave us promises that he couldn't fulfill and that our God wasn't able to defend us or keep us as his people. And, and he says, Lord, what about your reputation? Lord, if we're continuously defeated like this, what are people going to think about you? God, it's your honor that I'm concerned about. Lord, what about your great name? And can I say, boy, would to God that there were more people that were concerned about God's honor above all else. That their chief desire and motivation would be in what they do when things happen, whether it's personal defeat or difficulties or problems or whatever, that their heart would be, Lord, your honor is what I'm concerned about. Lord, your reputation is what's at stake. Lord, we're your people. We represent you. And we don't want people to think wrongly of you. Lord, we want to handle this in a way that you're honored, that you're not disgraced, that you're not, in a sense, uh, you know, mocked before the pagan people around who don't know you and understand you. Lord, what about your honor? Boy, what a great thing when you have people that have that kind of a heart that in prayer and their attitude that that's their concern, that they want to see God honored. But when you pray, let that be a, an undercurrent of your prayer as you're asking, Lord, what would glorify you most in this situation? Lord, what are we to do that would make sure that you are glorified and not disgraced in handling this matter? Well, verse 10, the Lord then answers Joshua, and this goes to show us, if we experience defeat, it's wise to go to God and to talk to God, to pray. And, and when we experience defeat, we need to go to God and see what God shows us. And he will. It tells us in Jeremiah 33 that God says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. God invites us to call to him and says, I will show you things that you don't know. So when we experience defeat, when maybe something transpires in our lives among a people that we're a part of and, and we just don't understand why and what, Lord, we need to go to God and see what God shows us because perhaps he may show us, as he often faithfully does when we seek him, that maybe something needs to be dealt with. And he may say, look, this is exactly what needs to be addressed and, and, and something needs to be changed in circumstances or addressed or you know, brought to the surface and dealt with. And, and it's good for us, like Joshua, to humble ourselves, to pray, to hit the pause button and to seek the Lord and to get on our faces before God and to humble. And so God lets them pray and, and humble themselves for the entire day. And then it seems toward the end of the evening, verse 10, the Lord then spoke and answered Joshua saying, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? In other words, Joshua, he says, it's time to get up. You've prayed about this long enough. He's going to say there in verse 11, you can take a sneak peek of it. Israel has sinned there's sin in the camp joshua that's what's going on but he says joshua you've prayed you've humbled yourself you've been on your face but he says joshua now it's time to get up and look this shows us something 
that there is indeed a time to pray. Absolutely. But there's also a time to then act in obedience, to do what God shows you, to respond to what God reveals to you. There's a time to pray. But then there comes a time where God says, okay, you've prayed long enough and I'm telling you what's going on now and I'm telling you how to resolve this and I'm giving you instruction and now you need to get up off of your face and you need to walk this out and go act upon it. And you need to handle this and you need to address it. And in a sense, I think the heart of God sometimes is no amount of any more prayer is going to make any difference until you do the righteous and obedient thing that I'm telling you to do. And you can lay on your face and pray all day long and feel very spiritual about it. But God's going to say, Joshua, you've prayed. I've revealed this to you. I'm going to show you what to do. And you need to get off your face because no more amount of prayer is going to do anything different until you go and address what needs to be addressed. And particularly if there's an area of sin, this is critical because sin causes separation and sin causes a barrier in our relationship with God. And God wants us to address it. So he says, get off your face. Israel has sinned, he says. Verse 11, they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have put it among their own stuff. Therefore, that's the reason, he says, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. And look what he says, neither will I be with you anymore. The idea is with his presence and his favor, assisting them with his power, unless, key word, unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. So again, what's God doing there? God is calling for repentance. This is why it's wise to pray because God can reveal things to us if needed. He can bring sin to the surface. He can indicate what's wrong if something has transpired that's caused the defeat. Sometimes there is sin in the camp and sometimes it needs to be addressed and it needs to be dealt with righteously and properly and sin causes spiritual interference between us and God. God's power, God's presence, the work and favor of his spirit. Isaiah 59 says, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. And this is what Joshua is discovering. Joshua, Israel has sinned. Someone violated the covenant what I gave to you when you conquered Jericho not to touch the accursed things. Someone has violated my command. There's a disregard of my word. There's someone who in a sense has introduced sin into the camp and is hiding it and deceiving everyone and it needs to be addressed. And he says, this sin is what has caused the ability to not be able to stand before your enemies. Again, do you see what the, the root effect of sin is? It weakens. It diminishes our power. In the same way, sin will always weaken our spiritual lives. If there is undealt with sin in my life, it will weaken my ability to overcome my enemies. And where I may have had great victory before, all of a sudden I find now I'm always being defeated because I'm not in, in proper relationship with the Lord. There's interference between me and the, the, the sap of God's spirit flowing through my life freely. And, and in a sense, there's this hindrance and God says, this will be the case unless you deal with it and you deal with it severely. You deal with it seriously and completely. 
Not just in a sense, brush it to the side, but that you have a full resolution of it. And this is important. Sin needs to be resolved. We need to address things and work through them as God directs us to. Verse 13, God then says to him, get up again, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. Because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until, notice, you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. And then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed. Again, that's a word in the Bible of willful disobedience the idea is the line is drawn in the sand and you know it's there and you step over it willful anyway this isn't a oops i made a mistake it's the line's clear but you step over the line anyway I mean, this is what had happened there was willful sin in what achan had done he's transgressed the covenant of the lord because he has done notice god's view a disgraceful thing in israel so joshua now announces to the people and you can imagine the reverberation of this news he says listen Everyone's astonished. What happened? Why were we defeated? We've just, we're burying 36 people and, and, and they can't understand. And he says, listen, God's revealed to me there's sin in the camp. And tomorrow, God's going to reveal who it is and what's transpired. And he says, tribe by tribe and then family by family and man by man, God knows exactly who it is and what's transpired. And tomorrow, we're going to appear here and we are not doing another thing until this gets dealt with because sin is destructive and sin is detrimental and harmful and hurtful he says this must be addressed so Joshua notice rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes and the tribe of Judah was taken he brought the clan of Judah took the family of the Zerites and he brought the family of the Zerites man by man and Zabdi was taken and then he brought his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. So God takes them through this process. And again, this reminds us of Numbers 32. Remember, God said there back in Numbers 32, be sure your sin will find you out. And ultimately, what Achan thought he was hiding, getting away with, ultimately God flushed it out to the surface and it came to light. And here Achan is now identified. There was this whole process going through the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah's chosen, then a certain clan, then a family, and then man by man by man. And keep in mind, this is a lot of people in the children of Israel. I imagine this must have took, would you agree, quite a considerable amount of time. Quite a considerable amount of time. Why does God allow this whole process? And keep in mind, it was a public process that everybody was participating in. Why does God bring them through this lengthy process? He could have just told Joshua, think about it, Joshua, it's Achan, go to his tent, knock on his door, drag him out, deal with him. But God brings the congregation through this whole process, this extensive process that takes a considerable amount of time. I think it's a demonstration of the grace of God because there was a big gap of time where Achan knew when he heard that announcement the day before. Uh-oh. 
And what was God doing? He was giving Achan an opportunity to humble himself and to repent. And perhaps, because God's a merciful God, had he blew the horn on himself and said, stop the whole process, don't put everyone through this, it's me. It's me. I did it. I admit it. Perhaps had he done that, he could have spared himself the more severe consequence because God honors humility. God honors repentance. God, God seeks to be merciful and yet Achan chose not to repent. He, he, he tried to, to ride out God. Think, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I can get one over on him. I mean, I buried it deep. God can only see three foot through the surface. I really buried my stuff deep in the dirt. There's no way he'll... F and and he, God gave him time to repent. He doesn't repent. Now it's evidence that it's him. God brought his sin to the surface and he'll do it for all of us if necessary. He's not a God of partiality. It needed to be dealt with. Verse 19, And Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord. God of Israel, make confession to him and tell me now what you have done and do not hide it from me. So Joshua, after he's identified by God, however God was doing this identification process, he's God. He knew who it was. He now turns to Achan when it's evident he's the man. And notice, you see the, the, the compassion there? There's not this criticalness. He says, my son. What, again, when sin is dealt with, it should be dealt with in a heart of gentleness, even when it's being dealt with. So what have you done? Now, I have underlined in my Bible, or take notice, he says to him, give glory to the Lord and make confession to him. He's calling him to confess his sins. Do you notice? I think this is beautiful. Give glory to the Lord by making confession of your sin. Well, we never probably think of confessing sin that way. That it actually glorifies God when we acknowledge, admit, and confess our sin. That glorifies God. Because God's worthy of us admitting when we've sinned against him. And that our sin has had its effect that it has. So he says, give glory to God. Make confession to him. Acknowledge what you've done. Now keep in mind here. Achan answers, verse 20, saying, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I've done. Now, let me just say this. Here's the sadness in this. Yes, he says, I have sinned. But that wasn't on his own choice. He's already caught. It's wonderful when somebody says, I've sinned and this is what I've done. But what matters most is to say, I've sinned and this is what I've done. And you're openly confessing and blowing the horn on yourself. Not after you get caught. It's a whole other thing. Listen, I deal with couples and individuals stuff all the time where, you know, it just after it comes to the surface. Because, you know, he's caught looking at the pornography or, or she's caught, you know, sleeping with someone else. Or, and then all of a sudden, oh, okay, I've done it. It's wrong. Well, well, thanks for saying that. However, it would have had a whole lot more impact and genuineness if you would have said that without being forced to have to say that. And I'm not diminishing a person can't be somewhat sincere. But God wants us to confess because it's right to confess, not confess because we have to confess. And so Achan here, he does make a confession, but it's because he's already been identified and caught. And, and look what he says, verse 21. He says, when I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent 
with the silver under it. Now I want you to notice verse 21 in his progress in his uh, confession of sin there you see a very good fitting picture the Bible gives to us of the progression of sin. I have these four words underlined. He says, I saw, I coveted, I took, and then he hid. That's the progression of sin. That's how sin happens. We see something that we know is forbidden. It's appealing. Certainly a problem. We see something that we know we shouldn't do. We see something we know doesn't belong to us. We shouldn't take. However you want to flush out what form of sin it is. We see what we know is wrong. And then we begin to desire it. We begin to have an urge for it. We covet it. We long for it. And then we take it. And then we hide it. That's how it happens. That's as old as the Garden of Eden. That's with Eve's progression. She saw the forbidden fruit. She saw that it was desirable to make one wise. And then it says she took it. She ate it. And then what'd she do? She tried to hide from God. This was David's error. Same pattern. David saw Bathsheba. He looked at her when he shouldn't be looking at her. Then he desired her. Then he inquired about her. Then he took her and then he slept with her and then he tried to hide it. This is always the progression of sin. We have to be careful because this is a pattern. And listen, here's the thing. You want to cut off the pattern before it culminates in giving birth to sin. Cut off the pattern quickly. Cut it off when they realize the process is beginning to happen before it ultimately culminates. And think of this too. He steals these things. And look what he says there, verse 21. He says, and those things are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. I want you to notice something. Did he even get to enjoy what he took? The guy took what he wasn't supposed to take. He selfishly sinned. I want this. I, want, I know I'm not supposed to have it, but I want it. He took a Babylonian garment. What did he do with it? He buried it in the dirt. He took gold and silver. Is he spending it and enjoying it? He buried it in the dirt. Look, when we do what's forbidden, here's the thing that stinks. You, you do the forbidden thing and you can't even enjoy it because you got to hide it. <laughs> so it's not even fun. I mean, if I'm a, might as well get your money's worth out of it. But this is how it works. When we enter into sin in some capacity, God is never going to allow us to enjoy sin. He's never going to allow us to enjoy disobedience. And so often, isn't it the case? You know, we, we, we transgress, we, we enter into something, we take something we know we're not supposed to take, we do something we know we're not supposed to do, and then we don't even get to enjoy it anyway. It's miserable. We bury it in the ground because we're so concerned trying to hide it. And this is always, that, this is the deception of sin. Much better to recognize, look, that's forbidden. God doesn't want me to do that. It's disobedience to God and His Word. And if I do it, I'm not going to be able to enjoy it anyway. So why bother? Why bother? You're not going to get to enjoy it anyway. You're going to have to hide it. You're going to hurt a bunch of other people in the process. So here, just very fitting illustrations we see described here. Let's finish up our chapter together. Joshua says, sent messengers. They then run to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent. And again, I find that interesting. Hidden in his tent. What does the Bible call our physical body? A tent. You know, a lot of times people have baggage and things hidden in their tent, hidden down inside themselves, things they're 
trying to hide from others, but yet God sees what's going on in the tent on the inside of their life. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the children of Israel, laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all the children of Israel took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, the oxen and donkeys and sheep in his tent and all that he had and brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So Israel stoned him with stones. And then after they stoned them as an execution, they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. So notice the sin is dealt with very severely. But again, sin must be dealt with seriously. This sin caused incredible devastation. And so this was God's measure of judgment against that sin to eradicate it so that it didn't continue to cause the problems it had among all the people. Now, some people look at this and they think, man, what? and they stumble over the fact of why, did, why was this whole family, his sons, his daughters, why, why were they put to death too? Well, listen, let me remind you, God's not a God of contradiction. Deuteronomy 24, 16 says that fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for their own sin. Which tells me this, because God doesn't contradict himself. Apparently, possibly one, his sons were adults. And number two, they must have somehow been accomplices and involved in the process, or else God would not have violated his word and allowed them to be put to death as well. So apparently they knew what was going on. They had somehow participated and they didn't say, hey, we know the, the, w- w- they helped hide what was going on and they didn't address it and they let people suffer rather than acknowledging what their father had done and maybe what they were involved in. So they suffered under the same judgment. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger and therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor. Literally, it's the Valley of Trouble. (laughs) That was a good reminder to this day. So notice, once the sin was judged and dealt with, as the result, it says the Lord's anger was turned away. The wrath of God was turned away. Now let me say, first of all, aren't you often glad that we don't live under the law? and in the age of grace and that we don't ever have to stand before God apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ and in the same way that God severely judged that sin and when the sin was judged and dealt with God's wrath was turned away that's a picture of exactly what's happened because of what Jesus has done for you and I God judged our sin upon Jesus and as a result of that the wrath of God has been turned away from all of our lives because we all have our share of failures and contributions as well how wonderful what Jesus has done for us you know this chapter reminds us that sin left unaddressed will always weaken us spiritually and bring defeat in our lives Proverbs 28 says that he who conceals his sins will not prosper but he who confesses them and forsakes them will receive mercy hey can I encourage you If there's something in your life that you are keeping and hiding that you know you shouldn't be, listen, you will never prosper spiritually. You will never make progress spiritually. You will be weakened spiritually if you continue to conceal it and hide it. God says, listen, you don't have to do that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness because Jesus turned the wrath away. And God says, confess it, forsake it, and you'll find mercy. And you can rejoice in what Christ provides. Let's stand. Let's pray together.